0: It's our custom to read from God's Word. I'm going to read and I'm going to pray. And today I want to share some truths from God's Word. So let, let's, uh, let's read. We're going to 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting from verse 1. And I'm going to read all the way to verse 53. And, uh, and then I want to share with you some thoughts today about shame and encountering and overcoming shame. Because I believe that's a word God has given me. And I hope that you'll be able to see shame from a perspective that you may not have seen before. This is what it says. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Socco, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokoh and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line for battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side. "...with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. That's about three meters tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of of mail. And the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. That's about sixty, seventy kilos. That's just his bronze kind of chest plate and his armor. He had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders." The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed six hundred shekels of iron, which is about seven kilos in weight, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, and we will be your servants, if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul into the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn. The next to him was Abinadab. The third was Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, everybody say 40 days. 40 days, the Philistines came forward and took his stand when? In the morning and in the evening. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand in the morning and in the evening. Day one morning, day two morning, evening. Day, day one morning, day one evening. Day two morning, day two evening. So if he is taking his stand for 40 days and he's taking his stand once in the morning and once in the evening, how many stands is that? 80. I mean, I mean, I can do that math. That was easy. 40 times 2 is 80. And Jesse said to David his son, take for, your, take for your brothers an ephah of parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp for your brothers. And also take these cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to battle and shouting the war cry. And in Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words. Everybody say same words same words as before. So for 40 days, day and night, he's speaking the same words and David heard him. All the men of Israel when they saw the man fled from him and were very much afraid. Verse 25, the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills his Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the, and the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard he had spoken to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see battle and David said what have i done now was it not but a word and he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way and the people answered him as before when the words of David were spoken were heard they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him and David said to Saul let no man's heart fail because of this philistine your servant will fight with this philistine and Saul said to David you are not able to go against this philistine to fight him for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth Verse 34, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, struck him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine Shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put on a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off and then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistines cursed David by his gods. And Philistines said to David, Come to me, and I will give you flesh, give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword or a spear, for the battle is the Lord's and He will give you into our hand. When the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly. David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead and stone sank into his forehead. And he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And when David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim, as far as Gath and Ekron, and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that the battle belongs to you. Thank you that the battle is not ours. Thank you that today you're going to speak with power, with purpose and clarity. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that has the ability to speak with conviction, with love, with presence, with compassion. And today I pray that, Lord, if there is any remnant of, Shame, if there is any remnant shame in any one of us or if there is any shame that we are currently battling with present past, or if there is a, 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 a pattern of us taking on shame of something that is happening in the, that might happen in the future, today I declare victory over this particular attack upon our church. I thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing and all that you are currently doing and all that you're about to do i give you praise lord in jesus name amen i was reading uh, this article that is found uh, about a scientific study that was done by a psychology researcher her name is philippa lally and she is a psychology researcher at the university college in london and a study published in the european journal of social psychology Lally and her research team decided to figure out how long it takes to actually form a habit. So, this study examined the habits of 96 people over a 12-week period. So, 96 people were studied over a 12-week period and each person chose a new habit for 12 weeks and reported each day whether, the, whether or not they did the behavior and how automatic the behavior felt. Some people chose simple habits like drinking a bottle of water with lunch, others chose more difficult tasks like running for 15 minutes before dinner. <laughs> At the end of 12 weeks, the researchers analyzed the data to determine how long it took each person to go from starting to automatically doing it. The answer, on average, it takes 66 times before a thought becomes a behavior. So that scientific study that was done by the University College of Learning. That's 66 times. If you repeat any thought, any word, any pattern for 66, behavior, 66 times, the brain has the potential to recognize that as the new normal, that it becomes automatic You see, repetition of any action or words has a profound impact on how we think, what we believe, how we behave, the choices we make, and how we act in life. You may think that your thoughts and your actions are random. They're not random. There are, they are based on value systems. Anything and everything you do is based out on a belief system about God, about yourself, and about the world you live in. And uh, science says that if you repeat any habit or repeat any message for 66 times in a row, it has the ability to reprogram your brain to start thinking in a different way, acting in a different way. We are told in this story in First Samuel chapter 17, That There was a giant, this guy was big, and for 40 days, both morning and evening, he repeated a same set of words. The same set of words were this, choose for yourself a man to fight me. Let's have a battle. If you win, we will all serve you for the rest of our lives. If I win, you all should serve us for the rest of your lives. Imagine hearing this for the first time. And when you're hearing this for the first time, this man is quite an imposing figure. He is three meters tall. He's been fighting all his life. His his reputation is legendary. He is known as a warrior. He's got 70 kilos of armor on him. He's got a spear, a javelin, a sword. And he is there taunting the Israelites who have drawn up for battle. On the first day on the morning, they hear the words, Choose a man. Pick a man to fight me. If we win, you're going to save. You're all going to be our slaves for the rest of our life. If, we, if you win, we'll all be your slaves. You hear that on the, the first morning and the first evening, the second morning, the second evening, the third morning, the third evening, fourth morning and fourth evening, and you hear that about 80 times. And sooner or later, when you hear a certain message, or when you are in a certain situation, or when you are in a certain environment. For a while, sooner or later, something begins to happen and change on the inside. Some of you have been hearing certain words that the enemy has been whispering to you, and those words could be because of demonic attacks, they could be because of patterns that you have learned through your childhood. It could be because of trauma that you may have experienced in life. It could be behavior patterns that you have observed from your mother or your father, or the absence of a mother or an absence of a father. Chances are, everything that you're doing today, the way you think, the way you talk, the way you behave, the choices you make, are based on value systems... And if you don't take time to examine why you do what you do, how you speak, why you speak, the way you speak, the choices you make, why you prioritize certain things and why you deprioritize other things, you'll, you'll just be an autopilot going, well, this is how life is lived. But you need to know that God's interested always in giving you a word to reprogram every wrong thinking that is up here. Somebody once defined to me what idolatry is. Idolatry is the worship of idols. Some people can create an image uh, that is made out of human hands. Let's suppose that I create this image, this, uh, this, uh, this uh, pulpit here, and I decide that today this is my God. So I can bow down to it and I can worship it and I can say this is my God. That would be idolatry. And lots of the people in this room wouldn't be silly enough to do that. But there here is another definition of idolatry. Idolatry is any image you have of God that is not true to His nature. Any image you have of God that is not true to His nature is an idol. And so even though we may not fall before a human man-made thing like this and worship it and say, this is God, I give you worship, some of us have uh, definitions or images or, or, or things about God that we're not even aware of that doesn't reflect his nature. For example, when you are in a battle like this, we can say things like, oh, the battle has been gone on for a long time. I know God sends me at tough times because, you know, he's trying to teach me something. Who told you that? Where did that thought come from? Is that true of God's nature? Because God doesn't need evil to teach you a lesson. God has the Holy Spirit to teach you a lesson. God is not there going, Oh my goodness, the Holy Spirit failed. I better send some demons to le- teach them a lesson. Because if, because the Holy Spirit failed, I better send, I better send you some sickness so you can fall sick and then you can learn a lesson that God is a healer. God doesn't need evil to teach you. God is a good God and He has His Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Holy Spirit has been given to us so he can teach us all things. And any such conclusion you have in your mind is an idol. And so we don't necessarily have to fall before a human mad made object to say I'm living in idolatry. Any image, any conclusion you have about God that is contrary to what God really is, is actually an idol. And today I want you to know God's power, his presence is an anointing is here to set you free from every form of idol worship so that your image and your view of God is true to what His nature is. Another thing that we do when we get in trouble and it happens in the morning and in the evening in the morning and the evening in the morning and the evening we come to the conclusion that this is how it's going to be. Nothing is going to change now. This is how I, I battled this 10 years ago. I battled this 20 years ago. I battled it 30 years ago. And sometimes we 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 can't even believe the promises of God because this has existed for so long and it has existed in such a way that nothing has changed. And when it, when it happens like that, we begin to say things like, maybe it's just the will of God. Maybe it's the plan of God. I don't understand. Maybe it's just my fate. Maybe I've just been born with it. You know how old I am now. It's unlikely that I will change now you know how long it has existed you know how long our kids have been this way you know how long our marriage has been this way and we come to conclusions about conditions and we say well that is how it is but the bible says that the blessed is the man whose hope is in the lord and so if hope checks out of your life and you begin to accept situations as they are instead of living in hope there is another idol where you have just come to the conclusion that god has no nothing to say or offer to your current situation i want you to know that god's will is not for you to live in idol worship but for you to have true worship where you truly worship God in the middle of your battle battles define how you view life trauma defines how you live life and some of us have had great calls of God upon our lives and the enemy made sure that even when we were young he sowed in us thoughts traumas patterns where where he showed us that no you will always live in lack you will always have to be worried about your future And so you always worry, you worry, you worry, you worry. And some of us are so worried when we go through a day when we don't worry and we think, what's wrong with us? I used to be worrying all the time and today I don't have any worries and it feels alien to you because worry has become your new normal. And when you don't worry, you're worried that you're not worried. And sometimes your spouse is looking at you and saying, why aren't you worried? You ought to be a bit more worried. I can't believe you're not worried. Where is that coming from? That's coming from years of patterns of being used to a problem but how many of you are glad that God came to set the captives free we are not to lend to live in that worry but we are meant to live in freedom the Bible says he whom the son sets free is free indeed come on give God praise for the freedom that comes in Jesus Christ we're meant to live in freedom and so Goliath hears these words again, um, again. I mean, Goliath says these words and an entire nation hears these words day in, day out, day in, day out, 80 times. They heard, hey, pick a man to fight, pick a man. Who, who, who's going to fight me? Who's going to come on? Pick a man, pick a man, pick somebody to fight me. If I win, all of you are going to be my slaves. If you win, we'll all be your slaves. And the Bible says that this, these words had an effect on the collective behavior on the people that were listening. Do you want to know what the collective behavior of the people that was listening is? Let's look at two verses in, in, um, in, in what, we, what we read. Um, this is what it says in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. That as soon as they heard these words, they were afraid. They were afraid. And then a few verses later, it says, When they heard the words, they were afraid, and then they fled. You see how words create behavior? Words create patterns. Now they are not only just afraid, but a few verses later it says, The the entire army, collectively, were not only afraid, but they were now afraid and running. I wonder... If there are patterns in your life, what you're doing right now. There are fears in your life right now. There, are, there are this, There's things that you have, you have the propensity to run away and to, to face. Because you see, we would rather, look at that verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and they were very much afraid. I wonder what patterns exist in your life right now that are a result of something that happened way back then because you see these men are fleeing today maybe it's day 38 maybe it's day 40 and they're afraid and they're running but the problem didn't start the problem started 40 days ago when they started hearing the words pick a man come on fight me if I win you're going to be all my slaves if you win you can be my slave and and this these words were repeated again and again and again and again I wonder if there are behavior patterns in your life today that are not actually connected with your today they're actually connected with your yesterday and if you do not realize that some of your behavior patterns of today are connected with your yesterday. You will continue to excuse the behavior thinking, man, that's who I am. That's how I respond. When I get to certain situations, that's my trigger. Don't say those words. That's triggering to me. Either you can live blaming all the triggers in society or you can come to Jesus and realize that the gospel is the solution to every trigger that has ever existed in human nature. And we can live when the feeling that God's desire is to heal us and to bring us to a place where there is freedom god's desire is not just for you to be saved so that one day you go to heaven god's desire is that while you are waiting to go to heaven you live a life of freedom but for what is the use of a life where you feel like one day i'm going to go to heaven i just can't wait for the trumpet to blow i just can't wait for my my day to come where god will call me home if that is your outlook right now that means you have more faith in death than you have faith in the gospel because you're hoping that death is your savior that one day will When you die, you will go to heaven and God will make all things to you. Do you not know that the gospel is more powerful than death? I'm not saying we don't have eternal hope and an eternal future. Of course, we will come to a day when God will wipe away every tear and no more tears will be the norm and the order of the day. But while we are waiting, I refuse to walk in despair. I would rather live a day in hope and say Jesus is with me than to live a day in fear and say, Oh, I don't know why this is, this is just the way I am. No, that is not the will of God for you. That is not the will of God for you. So they are are fleeing for 40 days. They've heard the exact same words. And they were afraid. You saw two verses come up on the screen. They were afraid. They were fleeing. They were afraid. But when David, who is the solution to the problem, comes on the scene, doesn't call the problem fear. He calls the problem shame. Why? Because we are told that everybody is running because they are what? Afraid. But when David comes to solve the problem, he doesn't call the problem fear. He calls the problem shame. Because David says these words, verse 26, 1st Samuel chapter 17, verse 26. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy? The armies of the living God. The word, re- the, the word reproach there is from the Hebrew word kerpo, which means disgrace, which means uh, any behavior that's based on elongated disgrace, where you are so ashamed that you are sinking in shame. Because everybody on the surface was looking at the problem and they're saying the problem is they're afraid. It's fear. It's fear. They're afraid. They're afraid. David comes to and says, I have, a, I, I, I think the problem is shame. Why do you think he's misdiagnosed? Do you think he's making a mistake? Do you think he's actually, it's, it's like when you're going to the doctors, you know, like, you know, like you go to the doctor, you have no idea what's wrong with you, and you think it's one, one problem, but you go to a really good doctor, really good doctors just know how to diagnose a problem quickly. They get to the root cause of it quite quickly, ask you a few questions, you think, oh man, I think, I think the problem is here. And they say, no, no, no I think, you, you may think that the problem is here, but the problem is actually here. You may think that the pain is over here, but it's because there's an infection here. You may think it's because there's there's a bit of thing going on here. But actually, if you can address this, you can address that. On the surface, everybody's afraid and everybody is running. David steps up on the scene and says, I have a problem for shame. Now, if I was there, I'd go, oh, thanks so much. Thanks for coming with that solution. But actually, we need somebody that can help us with the problem of fear. No, no, I have a problem for shame. No, and that's, that's not the problem. The problem is everybody's afraid and they're running. So what will be done for this for the man who, who takes out this uncircumcised Philistine and removes the reproach, the shame, the disgrace from Israel? You see, when you live in fear over an enemy that has defeated you again and again and again and again and again, and again now you have a bigger problem. It's the problem of shame. It's the problem of disgrace. It's the problem of a lack of confidence in the character and the nature of God. Because now, not only is the fear the problem, but the fear has existed for so long that the fear has now given birth to shame, to disgrace. Some of the lack of confidence in your life right now is because you are living in disgrace. And you haven't done anything disgraceful. You haven't done anything shameful. It's just that you haven't managed to overcome a certain enemy for such a long time. And it has just come and knocked on your door again again and again and again and again and again. And without even you realizing it, you think your problem is fear. But there is shame on the inside. How do I know? Shame is on the inside when you no longer have confidence confidence in the character and the nature of God, and you can no longer face the giant in the eye, you would rather turn away, imagine that the problem doesn't exist, or here's one thing that we do as Christians, we get involved in things of God, just to forget that there are things and issues in our life, so I'd rather keep myself busy doing all the important things, the good things, the kind things, serving people, serving God, serving the church, praying, because at the back of my mind, I always know, I hey, come on Sujit, you need to overcome this, you need to, and so I would rather keep myself busy and not face it. Because if I face it, I not only now have to face my fear, now I have to face my shame. I have to face my disgrace that for a long time I've been waiting on an answer and the answer has not come I feel there are people in this room right now you don't even know it you don't even know it it's like going to a doctor and the doctor says hey listen you didn't know this but this problem has existed for so long and because it was not treated at the right time this problem has now given birth to a bigger problem there's a secondary problem that's bigger than the primary problem and the problem here is not fear the problem is shame I wonder whether you are here today and there are things about you you don't even know you don't you haven't even realized that it's there because it has existed for so long and it has crept in and you don't know it was there all you can see is the giant and every day you have to face the giant but there is shame on the inside the good news about the gospel of jesus christ is that because of the death the burial and the resurrection of jesus christ because of the blood that jesus christ shed on the cross of calvary there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And today I believe you and I are meant to walk away from shame rather than continuing to live in shame, wondering what is wrong with us. What is wrong with us? Some of us have been asking that question by looking in the mirror. What is wrong wrong with me? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? I want to encourage you, there is nothing wrong with you. You are a child of God and you are forgiven. But what has happened is you have heard the same words again and again and again and again. And fear hath given birth to shame and now shame needs to be removed. The good news is nobody over there had a solution. But another person that had a different paradigm stepped into the story. His name was David and he had a paradigm and he said, I'm able to take this giant down. I've seen these kind of problems before. I used to look after sheep. I used to look after my dad's sheep. Sometimes lions would come and attack me. Sometimes bears would come attack me. Whenever they came attack me, I would go and rescue those sheep from the lion's mouth and the bear's mouth. And if the lion or the bear so happens to turn around and attack me, then I would grab them by the beard and tear their mouths apart and kill them. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of those lions and these bears. For today this uncircumcised Uncircumcised Philistine will come into my life. It will be given into my hand. I will cut his head off. And I will give this uncircumcised Philistine to the birds of the air. And they will come and eat on his flesh. I will cut this. And this congregation will know that God does not save by sword or spear or javelin. But the battle belongs to the world, the Lord. And the world will know that there is a God in Israel who saves. David steps on the scene. And he has a, the audacity to believe that he as a boy who is young. Who has no experience of war. can make a statement that is so bold that tens of thousands of army men, tens of thousands of soldiers who have a collective experience of thousands of years of army war experience and say, listen, even though all of you are living in shame, I have the audacity to believe that I have the solution for shame. Now, I have a question to ask you. In the Old Covenant, if David was the hero of the story and he had the privilege to say, you know what, I can remove the reproach of Israel, how much more the greater hero is in our story Jesus Christ he is the greater David and if he has stepped onto the scene and said it doesn't matter how long the shame has existed but I have the confidence the audacity to believe that you don't need to walk in shame another day of your life I have come to give you forgiveness to wash your sins to cleanse you from every unrighteousness to give you a brand new future a brand new hope so your identity is not what happened to you your identity is that of a child of God shame and reproach is not the portion of of a child of God, your portion is to be confident in who God has called you. And if he has started the journey, he is committed to complete it. Along the way, pain may have come, trauma may have come, shame may have come, words may have been repeated to you. But Jesus arrives on the scene and says, I have come not just to help you and to heal you and to save you, but I have come to remove your disgrace and your shame now and forever in the name of Jesus. Shame is not meant to be your portion. He has come to roll away your disgrace. He has come so that your confidence is in Christ Jesus. Philippians was a letter written to a church in a city called Philippi by Paul the Apostle. And in a church like this, we have what we call a safeguarding policy. A safeguarding policy is a policy that, by law, we are meant to have whenever any organization in the United Kingdom works with children or vulnerable adults, children under the age of 18 or vulnerable adults, because we want to make sure that children are safe. If you are a school teacher, you'll know that every school has a safeguarding policy. And Paul was writing to the Philippian church and he said, here is my safeguarding policy. I've got a safeguarding policy for you. Why is there a safeguarding policy? A safeguarding policy exists because the risk exists. Would you agree? A safeguarding policy exists. Why? Because the risk exists. In order to eliminate or combat or mitigate the risk, you need a safeguarding policy so that the risks don't come to the front. And Paul is writing to the Philippian church. If we can have that up, chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul says to the Philippian church... Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I'm trying to keep you safe. What's Paul trying to keep them safe from? Look out for the dogs. Oh, by the way, I've got to explain this whenever I preach this in a British context. Anywhere in the East, to call someone a dog is the biggest insult you can ever give. Okay, it is an insult. Here you think, oh, they call me a dog. You know, I love my dog. We love our dogs. But in the East or in any other culture, to call somebody a dog is the biggest insult. And Paul calls a group of people dogs. He said, "Beware! Look out! This is my safeguard. I'm writing these things to you again. That means the Philippians, or the, the letter to the Philippians, was probably written before, or at least chapter three was written before, because he's rewriting what he's previously written. I'm writing these same things to you, and it's no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. I'm trying to keep you safe. Look out for the dogs." I don't know what the British equivalent is, but think of a word. Whatever word you've just thought, that's it. Look out for the, the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Because we are the circumcision, which worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the blood. What, what was the safeguarding policy? Let's go back to verse 1 and 2. What was he trying to keep them safe from? A group of people had, a, had, had, had turned up at the Philippian church and said, are you a Christian? I'm a Christian. And they go, okay, if you're a Christian, can, can, are you circumcised? And people go, well, no, we're not. Ah, then you're not really a Christian. If, if you can't follow everything that's in the law, what makes you a Christian? I, you're, you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Show us proof. Where's the proof that you're a real man of God? Where's the proof that you're a real woman of God? Where's the proof? If you, if, if you were a real Christian, you wouldn't have done what you did last Saturday. I saw you. You, you wouldn't have gone what you went, gone, and you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have said those words and you wouldn't have seen those what you'd seen and you wouldn't have done what you'd done with those. Words. Where's, the, where's the proof that you're a Christian? And Paul says anytime that message is preached, There's a safeguarding risk. There's a safeguarding risk. That's an evil message. They're dogs, Paul calls them. Evil people. They mutilate the flesh. They claim that you can prove that you are a man of God or a woman of God by putting your own confidence in your flesh. But you can never prove to God that you are a child of God by coming to God with confidence in yourself. You can only have confidence in what Christ has already done. And he paints a contradicting picture in verse 3. Because we... meaning because we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God I worship not because I've got pedigree to prove it I worship because the Holy Spirit is in the room and what do we glory in we glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh in fact, if you think I've got confidence, if you think I can, if you think you've got confidence in the flesh, I've got more confidence in the flesh. This is my pedigree. I have reason. If anybody else thinks they have reason to have confidence in the flesh, I have more. What's my pedigree? Paul says I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm from Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew. I'm, I understand the law. I'm a Pharisee. I have zeal. I've persecuted the church. As to righteousness, Under the law, blameless. Can we go to the previous verse? As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He says, put up all of the law. If we go to the previous verse, verse 6. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. That means if you put up all of the law, all of the Ten Commandments, all of the laws in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, Second Samuel, all of the laws of the sin offering, the wave offering, the sheaf offering, the guilt offering. If you put up all of the laws of the Feast of Tabernacles, of the Feast of Trumpets, of all of the feasts. If you put up all of the laws that began in the Abrahamic law, in the Mosaic law. If you could put all of those laws in front of me and use those laws to inspect me, I'd be blameless. Do you know anybody that's lived that way? I don't. He said, I'm blameless. He said, however, verse 7, whatever gains I had, I count them as loss for the sake of Christ Jesus. In death, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Verse 9 and I am be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. There is only one righteousness that gives you the confidence to stand before God it's not that you are spotless according to the law it's that God has given you that by its sheer gift and God's righteousness is your gift and that's where shame begins to leave who is going to remove this reproach from Israel David says I'm going to remove this case of shame I wonder where your confidence lies today Are you still trying to manage and mitigate risk because you're hoping or you're afraid that something might go wrong? Or do you have confidence in the work of Jesus Christ that has removed shame because He has become your righteousness? And in our season of church right now, one of the ways or one of the areas we are trying to overcome shame is the shame that has attached itself to you because of the fear of lack. Because the fear of lack. You noticed it growing up, you noticed it in your mother, you noticed it in your father, you notice it in your grandfather. And anytime you think about tomorrow, there's a fear, there's a there's a tremor. And if it's existed for a long time, I promise you, no matter how much your income grows. You will continue to live in shame because the enemy is not in your wallet. The enemy is in your mind saying something might go wrong. Yeah, yeah, but what if you're not able to work next year? Yeah, but what if the business fails? Yeah, but what if the, the children don't go well? We're more cautious about what might go wrong than like David going, Hey, I wonder what will happen if everything went all right. (laughs) David goes what will be done for the man who takes away the shame everybody goes well all of your family will be tax free for the rest of your life and you get to marry the king's daughter he's like well that's what I'm going for I'm not going to stand here thinking what's going to go wrong I'm going to look at the reward on the other side you are either focused on all the things that could potentially go wrong or you are focused on the reward on the other side and as we come to Vision Sunday where God has been calling us as a church unapologetically to bring a vision offering I want to ask you the question, what is the dominant thought in your life? Is it going to go wrong? What if it goes wrong? What if it doesn't go right? What if it doesn't come through? Or, is your thought, what if it does work? (laughs) What if God is true to his word? What if we get to the other side and we say, wow, look what the Lord has done? Well, it depends on whether you're living in shame or not. Because if you're living in shame, you're thinking what if it goes wrong? What if the money is not gonna come through? What if we're not gonna have enough? The Bible says, I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. I have never. David said, I was young, but I'm now old. I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. If you can testify that God has kept you all these years, come on, give him a shout of praise. I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging. Never, it's never happened. It's never happened. It has never happened. And in seven days time, we'll come and we'll bring our pledge card. It's going to be a wonderful Sunday. 10 a.m. and 12 p.m. morning service, afternoon service. And we want to encourage you to bring your pledge cards. Where we are going to flail the pledge cards to say, I am believing God to say yes to whatever he's going to do a few weeks ago when Pastor Martin was here on Wednesday he he shared with us a testimony of how God spoke to him and said why don't you pledge 10,000 pounds and see what God can do he had 300 pounds in his account and he looked back and said man I feel like this is the voice of the Holy Spirit and he stepped out and obeyed what if he had stood there and said man what if it goes wrong what if it's not really true I wonder which voice you're listening to today the voice of your shame or the voice of God who has removed all shame Because you are the righteousness of God. We don't want to manipulate anybody. We don't want to pressure anybody. But we want to unapologetically ask that you obey the Holy Spirit. Because He cannot lie. He is true to His word. And in seven days from now, we're going to have vision Sunday. We're going to cast vision. We're going to hear some stories from the past. We're going to hear some stories from the present. We're going to cast vision for what God is going to do. And we're going to pledge our offering of what our vision offering is. Over 36,000 pounds have already been pledged. And we've got seven days to go. I'm believing that every penny, every pound that has been pledged will be the removing of the disgrace of the love of money, the fear of the future, the lack, the want, the examples of many times you have lived in a scarcity, slavery mentality, thinking this is not going to work. You don't want to pass that on to your children. You don't want to pass that on to your children's children, where 20 years from now, you watch your children grow up and think, man, they're struggling with the same fears that we struggled in. Why don't you be the generation that breaks that yoke, that breaks that curse and say, I am going to pass on a confidence that Jesus Christ is my righteousness and my righteousness comes from him as a free gift. And that is where I will stand. Because your children don't want to inherit your demons. By that, I don't mean you're going to pass it on genetically. I mean, they're also going to live thinking, Oh, I'm not going to have enough. Come on, you watch your parents' generation battle that. Break that in this generation. God has been speaking to us to say, This is the time. I remember a few days ago, I sat down with my son, Judah. And I said, Judah, what do you think the Holy Spirit wants you to do? He said, Dad, let me pray. He listened to the Holy Spirit. He came back and said, Dad, I feel, I feel God wants me to give 28 pounds. I said, great. He said, Dad, where is it going to come from? I said, I don't know. That's where you've got to trust the Holy Spirit for. And the biggest smile appeared on his face. He said, Dad, I'm excited to see what God is about to do. You see, children know how to have childlike faith just to trust God that something is about to happen. But over time, all of the knocks we've got in life has knocked out the childlike wonder of what God can do. I wonder whether you can reclaim some of that childlike wonder again to see. I wonder what God can do in my lifetime. Because God is going to do something. Somebody's 20 pounds or somebody's 20,000 pounds. Wherever your faith is, I urge you to obey the voice of the Holy Spirit because I believe we're gonna break some ceilings and break some barriers and he is immeasurably he's able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine how according to his power that is at work within us not your power his power that is at work within us I want to pray for every person that is probably battling shame today You've got it, whether you know it or not, if you've battled something repetitively over time. We're going to take up our tithes and offerings and I want to declare a blessing over every person that's getting ready to give. Giving options are going to come up on the screen in a moment. We'd never finish a service without saying thank you to Jesus for what he has done. We believe our tithes are the 10% of everything God has given us. We believe it belongs to God. And above and beyond that, we give an offering to say thank you to everything that he has done giving options are on the screen. You can give by text, by card, by scanning the QR code or by setting up a standing order. We've also got team members ready with Beacon Church lanyards who have contactless card machines and you can give by contactless card too. But after this I'm going to give people an opportunity to receive Jesus into your life for the first time and then we are going to pray that every spirit of shame. I truly believe there is an anointing on the house this morning to break the spirit of shame so that you don't have to live with it on day of your life. But let's respond with our gifts right now and then we will pray and close our service this morning.